Six and a half weeks ago, we moved from the decade of the teens to the decade of the 20s. As I watched different media prior to that New Year's, much of the rhetoric was about a new era, a new day, hopes and aspirations for a better future. But within less than a week from that New Year's Day, the discussion was about war, terrorism. Leaders from nations around the world could not agree. Leaders in our own nation could not agree on what to do and how to do it. And at least for me, the thought was, we're back to normal. There's a lot of good in this world, but you know, and I know, that there's more evil in the world than good. And in those conversations, all kinds of angst, fears, and issues were raised. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you wonder, is there any hope for living well in this world? Not a pie in the sky kind of hope, but hope that really means something. Which is why I want to talk about the second greatest problem facing humanity. Now, some of you may have wondered, did I miss last week? <laughs> no. But you see, as followers of Christ, we have dealt with the first greatest problem. The greatest problem facing humanity is sin and death. Death basically is separation. Everyone in this world comes into the world separated from God. And if we don't do something about that, we leave this world separated from God. Physical death is the separation of the material from the immaterial. And we believe that's why Jesus Christ came, that he came to deal with the issue of sin and deal with the issue of death. And if we have placed our faith in what Jesus Christ has done in our behalf, we have dealt with the first greatest problem. And so if that's the case, what hope is there for the second greatest problem? You see, if you read the Bible, you know that when sin entered the world, there were other ramifications to that. All of us in this room, everyone in the world are born with a propensity to want to do evil more than good. All of us, even Christ followers, can think of times of people who have loved us and cared for us and supported us, but we have betrayed them because of our selfishness and putting ourselves first. And you take that and you extrapolate it across the world and you realize that's why in this world there is more evil than there is good. And then we also know that when sin entered the world, God put a curse on this creation. This environment which was designed to help us and sustain us, which it still does in many ways, has become very capricious. 
There's earthquakes and tsunamis and fires and disease and all kinds of problems that sometimes strikes us in an unexpected manner. And so when you take the fact that many in the world have not dealt with the first issue, which is sin and death, we all have this propensity to be about ourselves at the expense of others, even if we don't want to. And we live in a creation where we never know what evil is going to happen. The second biggest problem is fear. In fact, that's why Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid from God because they were scared. I mean, even for us as Christians, we say, we've dealt with sin and death. We're still afraid of death, at least physical death. I remember when, as a young father with a small family moving to Colorado, most of the places I had lived before then, the winters were fairly benign. At least the terrain was flat if it snowed. And I remember when that first snowstorm hit in Denver, and I had to go to a meeting. And I'm in the car, and I turned this corner for a road that's about a mile downhill, and at the end is a traffic light that you have to go through. And as the car started down, it began to swerve back and forth and fishtail, and I literally slid that mile. And as I got closer and closer to that traffic light, I realized it was going to be red when I slid through it. I did slide through it. I didn't hit any cars. And when it straightened out and I stopped, for the next two miles, I just shook with that surge of adrenaline wondering what's going to happen. What if I had been maimed? What if I had died? What's going to happen to the children? What's all that's going to happen with death? And all of us, in one time or another, we fear death. We also fear of being born into a world, to a family or to an environment where no one loves us, no one cares for us, to grow up in a world where no one identifies us, no one respects us, no one honors us. What we accomplish, what we do, with often the greatest fear of dying by ourselves and no one caring. And that begins to relate to other fears. We who live here in North America realize that many of us are very blessed. We don't wake up in the morning wondering if there will be food for that day if there will be clean water. If I get sick, there will actually be medicine. But much of the world, that's true. Now, we may feel that when we lose our job, when the company gets downsized and all of a sudden, how are we going to support a family? I never thought that as a grandparent, I would talk to my daughter and granddaughters about what do you do if the bullets begin to fly in your school. I don't know about you, but there are times when I go to big events, I wonder what's gonna happen. This whole idea of safety and security. I mean, I live in California. Two years ago, there was a fire within two miles of our house. Fortunately for us, the wind changed. And the fire went another direction. But that was horrible for the people in the path of that new fire. 
And we have learned no matter how big you build your house, where you build your house, you're not safe. I'm in my 70s, but I can still remember being in junior high and high school of thinking about all the girls I didn't date because I was afraid. And afraid that I would get rejected. And so, didn't ask. I was watching a panel show recently. The question was asked of the panel, what's the most dangerous thing that can happen in the bedroom? And one of the, one of the panelists responded, you tell the truth. And the audience roared with laughter. Because we all know we can be married to someone for 10, 20, 40 years. We love each other. We care for each other. But there's certain conversations we don't have. There's certain places we don't go. There's certain things we don't talk about. This Christmas, my wife and I bought some games for our adult ch children to play with our grandchildren to engender, hopefully, some meaningful conversations. We were trying the game out over Christmas, and I was with my daughter, her husband, and her three girls. And the card, the question on it was, which motivates more, fear or love? And almost immediately, my three granddaughters said fear. And I looked at them. Two are in high school, one's in middle school. They're getting straight A's. Well, they're my granddaughters. They're getting straight A's. They're in extracurriculars. They've got friends. They've got an awesome home life. And I thought, as I sat there, what are they afraid of? Is it parental expectations? Teachers? Peers? Getting into college? But they're afraid. We extrapolate that out to nations. All nations live with fear, fear of being dominated by other nations, fear of recession, fear of natural events that will come through and so destroy parts of the nation that it ruins the economy. We're afraid of people in power and the people in power are afraid of losing power. We're afraid of those who are rich and the rich are afraid of losing their riches. And all kinds of things are done that are improper because we all live with fear. And so the question is, if this is our second biggest problem, what's the hope? When you read Mark chapter 4 and Jesus is out on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and a storm comes, they think they're going to drown and he's asleep and they wake him up and he calms the storm. He turns around and he looks at them. Why are you so afraid? Trust me. And the Bible's answer to fear is faith. Believe Jesus. Now I read that. I believe it's in the Bible. I believe it because it is in the Bible. But I find there are times I don't know what that means. I don't know how to work that out. I mean, I find if I got big financial stuff that's scaring me, I don't win the lotto. 
and the whole nature of miracles is that they're abnormal. So what does it mean for us when we are dominated by fear to say, believe in Jesus? To talk about that, I want to spend some time talking about one of the most fearful men in Scripture. His name was Jacob, grandson of Abraham. Most of the biographical data on Jacob is found in Genesis 25 to 35. His father, Isaac, his mother, Rebekah, could not have children. So they prayed. They said, God, give us a baby. And Rebekah becomes pregnant. It must have been a very difficult pregnancy because she prayed and she said, God, I don't understand what's going on in my body. God will said, first of all, you're going to have twins. So that's part of the issue. But these twins somehow intuitively know that their life is not going to be normal. You see, the younger twin, the one that will be born second, will dominate the older twin and his descendants, which means that the older twin and his descendants will be submissive to the younger. That will against everything in the culture. In those days, if you had a baby, particularly if it was a male child, that oldest child was the, the, the one, most of the inheritance, most of the honor. And God says, that's not going to happen here. The twins are born. They could not be more different. When Esau is born, he's covered with red hair. In fact, some texts talk about him almost looking like a blanket. And he was going to be an outdoorsman, hunt, fish. He was the kind of guy you put on a truck commercial. <laughs> Jacob, on the other hand, he liked the refined life, the indoor life. Today, he's the one who would read the books, and he actually became a very good gourmet at a young age. And he liked the finer things. Isaac, his favorite twin was Esau. Rebecca, the wife, her favorite twin was Jacob. So you have two boys that are very different and two parents who have their favorites. And by the time the four of them are adults, it's obvious that this promise from God that the younger will dominate the older isn't believed by some and isn't liked by some. Esau comes back one day as an adult. He's been out all day hunting and doing whatever outdoors people do. And he walks in and Jacob has just prepared that awesome meal with the right herbs and spices. The odor assaults his nose and he says, I want some of that. Jacob says, I'll make a deal with you. You can have some. If you give me the birthright. You tell everybody, I'm like the oldest son. I'm going to be in that position. Everybody knows that. If not, you can starve. And so Esau says, sure, I'm hungry. Let me eat. Now, you might look at that and say, well, Jacob was just being wise. He knew what God had said, and so this is what he was doing. I think he was doing because he was afraid, because when you look at the next incident, it proves it. Some years later, Isaac is old. He's almost blind, and he calls Esau in. 
He says, go out and get that particular kind of game I like. Fix it the way you fix it and bring me a meal. And when I'm done eating, I'll bless you. You'll become the favorite son. You'll get most of the inheritance. You're the one who will be honored despite what God had said. Rebecca hears the conversation. And she says to Jacob, go out and get some animals out of the flock, kill them. I'm going to fix a meal just the way Esau likes it. Put on some of your brother's clothes so you smell like him. We'll take some of the wool from some of these animals and put it on your arms in case your father touches you. Disguise your voice and you go in and you pretend to be Esau. And you will get the blessing. And mother and son are willing to con father and brother to get what God has already said that would happen. Why? Because they're afraid it's not going to occur. Because of this, Esau lets it be known that when his father dies, Jacob is a dead man. Rebecca hears it and says, you need to go miles, hundreds of miles away, live with my brother because you're going to be dead. So Jacob goes and lives for 14 years with his uncle, <coughs> Laban. Now, both of them are afraid that they're not going to make it in life. And when you read the story between them, they both keep tricking each other to get rich. Jacob apparently wins because one day Laban's sons come to him and said, Dad, if you don't get Jacob out of here, we're not going to have any inheritance left. And so Jacob says, I'll leave. And the last time you see them, they have basically created a pact that says we will have nothing to do with each other. We'll leave each other alone. Jacob now is ready to go back home. But 14 years ago, Esau said, I'm going to kill him. His parents are dead. And so as Jacob puts together this massive caravan with hundreds and hundreds of animals and servants, almost like a small town, to travel that long distance back, he sends messengers ahead. And he says, uh, find out what Esau thinks about me. The messengers return and said, Esau's heard you're coming. In fact, he's coming to meet you. And by the way, he's got 400 men with him. And some of the texts say, and they're mounted which in those days was the way you fought battles. And the text says that Jacob was scared to death. And so he begins to strategize. That was his way to deal with things. He takes this big caravan and he divides it into two caravans and he sends many of the servants and animals ahead of him, hoping that if Esau comes to them and he kills them all, maybe his bloodlust will be satiated with the blood of all those people. And then he takes this massive gift with hundreds and hundreds of sheep and goats and camels, divides it into three big gifts and says to the first group of servants, take this to Esau, tell him it's from me, and he'll be so happy. But then the second gift will show up and he'll be even happier. And then he'll see the third gift and hopefully he'll be so happy he forgets to kill me. He does that. Then they get to the place where Jacob is convinced that tomorrow will be the encounter with Esau. They come to a stream, they cross the stream, and he bids his family and the caravan down for the night. And then he crosses the stream by himself and goes back where they just left.
Now, if you realize it, what Jacob is saying is, if Esau shows up tomorrow and kills my family, at least I can get out of here. I don't think he would have been voted father of the year that night. And while he's there, he begins to pray what James calls a double-minded kind of praying. Oh God, you made this promise. You said I would rule. You said I would be dominant. And Esau's coming to kill me. Don't you understand? And, and I don't know what's going to happen. But God, you made this promise. But God, Esau. But God, you said this. And he goes back and forth. Out of the darkness, big, tall stranger appears. Jacob is convinced he's a predator. And so the Bible says they fight all night. In the morning, neither man has given each other the quarter. The man says, I've got to go. And Jacob says, you're not going till you bless me because sometime during the night, he realized this man was special, perhaps because that time he reached over and touched Jacob's thigh and his socket went out of joint. And the man says to him, what's your name? He says, my name is Jacob. And the man says, well, your name now will be Israel because you have struggled with humans but now you've struggled with God and you'll be spared. And Jacob said, then bless me. Before the man did left, he did. And Jacob came to the realization that just as God took on human form and came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, he had done it that night and he had been wrestling with God. And he called the place Peniel, which means, I have struggled with God. I've seen him face to face, which he thought meant automatic death, and I have been spared. Next morning, he lines his family up and the caravan and puts his family at the back, which is the safest place. But the text tells us he leads the caravan to meet Esau. When Esau shows up, the brothers embrace, they cry. He finds out that Esau has not come to kill him. And Esau says, I don't need this big gift. And Jacob says, yes, you do. Because when I look at your face, it's as though I see the face of God. You see what God did. After Jacob had done all the stuff to try and save himself from this fearful thing, God said, we've got to have some time together. And in that relationship with Jacob, he confronted him with his greatest fear and saw he would survive. He saw God face to face and he lived. And Jacob came to realize that if God will do that for me, he can protect me from Esau. As I said, I'm in my 70s. As I look back over my life, there's been about five or six times that the events in my life have been so scary. I couldn't sleep at night. I didn't know what to do. The last one, 
was 12 months ago. The news that my wife and I got was so shocking that it put me into a tailspin of fear. And I didn't know what was going to happen. And I thought, if this happens, not only is it going to be horrible, it's going to be embarrassing. It's just going to be a terrible thing. And so I began to develop strategies just like Jacob. And we implemented this strategy, and then we did that strategy, and then we performed this other strategy. And when all the work was done, the problem was still there. And for about a period of two months, many nights, I either couldn't go to sleep or I would wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to go back to sleep. Just cogitating, praying my own double-minded prayers. I mean, the Apostle Paul said, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. God, I can't be separated from you. But what about this? God, this, this is going to, this is bad. Why aren't you doing something? Or Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God, you're not being a good shepherd right now. This is going on. And one night, the Spirit of God came to me as he's done the other times. And for me, it's always at night. I'm not sure that's true for everybody. But he said, we got to talk. We got to wrestle. And the Spirit of God and my spirit had one of those conversations that only as a follower of Christ, you know. The Spirit of God said, Paul, I want to ask you some questions. Think through what's the worst scenario that can happen if all of this comes true. So I thought of it. And then God said, I'm going to ask you this question. Let's suppose that happens. And I want it to happen. Is that okay with you? I had to think about that one. And then God said, if I want this to happen, can you stop it? No, I don't think so. In fact, I can quote verses about that one. If I don't want it to happen, will it occur? No. And look back over the other times we've had these experiences. What's happened? Sometimes God has been pretty bad, and other times you surprised me, and it wasn't as bad as I thought. In all those situations, whatever happened, was I with you? Did I walk through that with you? Yes, you did. And even in the worst of times, I could sense your presence. Well, as you look back over those other times, what's the result? Oh, I realize that every time it happened, when it was over, my faith had increased. My maturity as a child of God had developed further. My trust in you had grown. In fact, I've been amazed at how out of that there has come great good every time. And then this thought came. Do you remember the night that Jesus prayed in the garden before he died? And he said, if it's possible, can you remove this? 
I didn't. But what happened? We died. He paid for my sins. You raised him from the dead. You seated him at your right hand. And I have a relationship with you because of Jesus. So if all of that happens, Paul, why are you laying here awake? And I rolled over and had the best sleep I've had in months. And I've not had another night of that. Now, we face some difficult things, but I already see God at work doing some what I call miracles as he begins to change what I thought the worst-case scenario would be. You see, when Jesus says, trust me, what he's saying is, when things go well, are you happy with me? Yeah. When things go bad, you say, God, where are you? But am I still there? Yes, you are. Are you still happy with me? I got to work through that one. One theologian has said a very wise thing. He said, if you want to know what God's will is for your life in the future, you're going to have a difficult time figuring that out. But if you want to know what God's will is for your life, you look back and you see how God has taken you not only through the good times, but the difficult times. There's an old gospel song that says the God of the mountain is the God of the valley. You see, when the good times hit, we say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Jesus is wonderful. But Jesus says, you need to understand, when things are going wrong, you still sing, praise God, from whom all blessings flow, because he hasn't changed, and he still has me in his hand. Which is why the psalmist said, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. The God of the mountain is the God of the valley. And when we believe that, faith defeats fear. Would you stand as we close this service, please? I want to remind you, as you maybe wrestle with some things after we close, there will be people here to pray with you if that would be of help to you. Let's bow in prayer. Our God, we are grateful that when you call us to yourself, you never change. And you love us as much now as you did the day you called us to yourself. Help us to not define you by our circumstances, but help us to demonstrate that we believe Jesus is still all-powerful, all-knowing, always in our presence, and we're in his, and you still have us by your strong right arm despite the circumstances. Because in this world, that's how we show people who haven't dealt with the first problem why Jesus is worth following. 
May that happen for our sake, but for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.